Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. All right, I think we'll get started here. So to start off by thanking my three panelists for coming to talk about what people often don't talk about, which is uh, human population. Um, so this is something that, uh, you know, few journalists cover. Wudan Yan, our first panelist, uh, is an independent journalist who's written quite a bit about this in the past couple of years, um, sort of the elephant in the room. We have Roger Mark D'Souza, who is president and chief executive officer of Sister Cities International, and Richard Grossman, who proposed this panel idea to us, and he is a columnist of Population Matters uh, in Durango and a retired OBGYN. Um, so, I guess sort of for those of you who haven't read the, the description of this panel, we want to talk about why journalists report so little about the population problem, um, especially when data shows and research has shown that having one fewer child uh, in developed countries is the best way to reduce carbon emissions via personal choice. Um, and so there was a study that was done out of Lund University a couple of years ago that said that uh, Having an additional child would otherwise annually contribute an additional 58.6 tons of carbon dioxide uh, in developed countries. Uh, the runner-ups were living car-free, which is 2.4 tons, and taking one transatlantic flight, which is 1.6 tons. So it's a huge difference between those two, and yet often when you're looking at media stories, the graphs are showing, they don't even mention having one fewer child. So we want to talk about why that is, why journalists are shying away from this topic, um, some of the experiences that reporters have had who have written about this, um, and sort of those reactions from the public and even other journalists. Uh, and for those who do want to cover it, what are some tips, uh, where should we be focusing our attention, and how should we how should we phrase this issue? Because it can be very controversial. Um, and to that point, too, I know opinion varies very widely on this topic, so I just ask that people be respectful of our panelists, and if you feel that you can't be, we ask that you might leave the room. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to start by having uh, each of our panelists give a very short uh, introduction about themselves and their work, and then I will ask some questions, uh, and then we'll have the last 30 minutes for a Q&A session with our audience members. So Richard, would you like to start sure. with an introduction? Sure. So I read an advertisement in Scientific American in um, 1960, I think, that the, uh, I'll read some parts of it, a statement of conviction about overpopulation, because unless a favorable balance of population and resources is achieved with a minimum of delay, there is the prospect, there is in prospect a dark age of human misery, famine, and unrest. We believe that widespread effective and voluntary use of medically sound and individually acceptable birth control is a, an essential factor in any humane design to raise world living standards and achievable and to achieve world peace. So I chose in order to try to advance voluntary family planning. I chose a career in medicine and obstetrics and gynecology. Also have training and worked in public health. I'd like to just mention um, that public health realizes or looks at three different ways of 
achieving uh, prevention. Primary prevention is looking at the underlying cause of the problem and trying to, to deal with that. And what we're doing now is not looking at the primary cause of global climate change and the other environmental problems that we deal with. What we're looking at is secondary prevention or tertiary prevention dealing with the side effects of what um, I would like to call overpopulation and overconsumption. Can you think of any problem, environmental problem that we deal with or suffer from that would not be better if there were more, if there were fewer people and less consumption. So what I'm here to do is, what my goal is to learn why journalists, because I'm not truly a journalist, don't talk more about human population issues. And I have some little handouts here. If you're interested in finding sources, there are some up on the two front tables. Um, and if we run out, you can just take a picture on your phone. Two sources, one of which is the Population Media Center, and they have a weekly digest. If you wish to subscribe to that, there is a uh, URL. And also, I put out a monthly uh, newsletter on population issues. I've done that for 24 years now, and the backlog of essays is available at my blog, and if you'd like to subscribe, my email is there too. Great, thank you, Richard. Uh, Wudan? <clears throat> Can I take this out? I think so, if you kind of pull it towards you, maybe? Yeah. Okay, hello, thanks for coming. Um, I'm the only journalist on the panel, which is great. Hey. <laughs> Plus the moderator. Um, so I'm a freelancer. I cover a range of really random topics, and most of what I write about I stumble across by accident. Um, so the story of how I started writing about population is a very similar one. Uh, a very environmentalist friend of mine. I live in Seattle, Washington, so there are a lot of those folks. Um, recommended me to read Colin Beaven's book, uh, No Impact Man. Um, at the time of reporting and writing this, I guess, reporting this book. Um, he was married, living in Manhattan, had one child, was realizing that the environmental crisis was upon us and we must take action. And for him, that meant individual action. And so he um, started shopping at farmer's markets. He stopped taking flights, which made vacations very inconvenient because he would try to take... Um, the train everywhere, because in New York City, you don't really have a car, unless you have $300 to spare a month to pay for parking. Um, and in this book, he just had a throwaway comment about the voluntary human extinction movement. Um, so let me say that again, the voluntary human extinction movement. <laughs> um, and I was really struck by this because it's an idea that sounded so out there and so absurd. And my job as a reporter is to dig into um, why, what are people's motivations for joining that, for starting that. Um, 
And as I began that research, uh, I started talking to the leader behind the movement. Um, he goes by a pseudonym called Les, L-E-S, middle initial U, Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Um, he lives in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I spoke, I spent about a year, I spent about a year talking to him and researching the story and trying to pitch it, <laughs> which was a fascinating experience because um, editors were like, you know, this guy sounds really interesting. What a revolutionary idea. I'm not sure how this is going to connect us with readers. Um, and it wasn't until that I made the link that talking to Les Unite and learning about what the movement was really about, um, I was in my reproductive prime. I still am. Um, but it was time for me to think about whether or not I wanted to bring on the next kin. And through talking with Les, uh, I ultimately decided no. And I think the reason why I sold the story is because of that personal link. Like, I am the bridge between the reader who um, might think that this is too out there of an idea and trying to rationalize it. And um, it would be easier for the reader to connect to me, somebody who has now decided to not have children, to learn about this out there idea. Um, but I do want to read this one passage, not to toot my own horn, really, but uh, sort of about the story. Um, at first blush, the idea of mass self-extinction sounds so radical, so uncomfortable, that it makes you wonder whether the person behind it is troubled, cynical, or at least blind to the wonders and possibilities of human life. But Knight insists he's not a misanthrope, that he didn't have an unhappy childhood, that he thinks pandas are cute, and he doesn't think humans are intrinsically evil. He sees the beauty in the creation of all lives. It's just that to him, there's a trade-off, especially when one species is unintentionally causing the death and decline of so many others. Um, so this was really into my foray about population. Uh, and I recently wrote about this issue for Columbia Journalism Review um, because in the summer, many of you may have recalled uh, the New York Times publishing a piece called, um, one moment. Uh, if seeing the world helps ruin it, should we stay home? Um, in which the writer did not talk about, uh, well, the premise of the story is that, well, not taking a flight is the most environmentally impactful thing you can do. I was like, mm, that's not true, according to uh, the study that we talked about. Um, and I posted about it on Twitter, and an editor at CJR was like, do you want to elaborate on this? So pro tip, if you're a freelancer, have opinions that are grounded in facts, maybe tweet about them and an editor might commission you a story because that happened. Um, anyway, so uh, I know Gloria has more questions about that piece and I'm happy to uh, save my discussion about that for later. Thank you. Roger, Mark? Thank you very much, Gloria. I, I want to make three quick points because this is such a sensitive topic. I wanted to start by talking about how I self-identify and what that means as I, I, be, I, as I work and look at these issues. So a uh, cisgender man, husband, father of two boys, person of color, originally from the developing world. I'm from the Caribbean. I'm an American now. I'm an environmentalist. So those are some of the frames and identities that I bring as I look at these important set of questions. 
The second point I want to make is a very personal story. So 25, 26 years ago, my wife and I, my wife is French, PhD, I was finishing my graduate work, we live in Washington, DC, and we were using an IUD and found ourselves pregnant. We were elated, delighted, we wanted to have kids. And um, we, uh, much to our shock, um, our son was born with a heart defect and died at three weeks. And he died in my arms at Georgetown Hospital. So here we are, two, a young couple, both with graduate degrees in Washington, D.C., at Georgetown Hospital. We've just lost a child. And my wife says, we have to reproduce like mad. We have to have a bunch of kids. Because who knows you know, how many will survive? And I thought to myself, holy shit, this is what I'm studying in grad school. This is the reality of many women in the developing world that I ultimately went on to work, work with. But just to emphasize that this is a deeply personal question, and this is why it's so intrinsically difficult for us to figure out how we talk about it. So the first point is about identity and how you look at this set of issues. The second is that it's deeply personal. My third story is about the professional component of it. So one year later, after my son passed away, I started working at World Resources Institute. I was special assistant to the president of WRI, and he had been appointed by President Clinton to co-lead the President's Council on Sustainable Development, PCSD. And we were making recommendations to the Clinton administration on how to put the United States on a path to sustainable development. So of course, you know, the three E's around sustainable development at that time, you know, economics, equity, and environment. Um, and we had a series of task forces around, you know, um, sustainable communities, um, a whole range of issues that we looked at. The two most contentious issues that the council looked at in making our recommendations to the Clinton administration was, number one, how do you define economic growth? Very contentious. And the second was population. And we worked on a task force that was on population and consumption. And the perception was this is a third rail issue. Touch it and you're dead. You don't want to get near this issue. And of course, the issues immediately came up around abortion, teenage sexuality, and immigration. Okay, those were the three key concerns that immediately came up in a very personal space when we were looking at making recommendations to the Clinton administration on how to put the United States on a path to sustainable development. So I just want to put that out there, some, some context for our discussion today. I have a feeling we could talk about this for several hours, if not days, um, but I want to just 
sort of start things off, I guess, um, you know, thinking about that controversy and especially, you know, the early days and sort of the very first discussions of this, you know, decades and decades ago with thinking about Malthusian theory, which was sort of the origins of this idea. And it was very controversial and offensive and forced sterilization and, and sort of led to, you know, things like that. Um, I want to ask what was sort of the reaction when you wrote about this for CJR and for Medium with the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement? What kind of comments did you receive from the public on your stories, Wudan? Um, it really ran the gamut of a lot of other women writing to me, and they're just like, so in, in my Voluntary Human Extinction piece, I talk a lot about this idea of pronatalism, that we live in a culture that you know, tells us it's good to reproduce, it's good to have children, you should try, try, try. Um, and I really interrogated that for myself, uh, and that's published in the story. Um, but a lot of women wrote me being like, thank you so much for writing that. I feel a lot less alone. There were also people, men mostly, uh, who compared me to Hitler, who, was, who were like, if you think everyone should just live a long life and die out, why don't you just kill yourself? Um, <laughs> but that's not the point of the voluntary human extinction movement. The voluntary human extinction movement stands by, you know, live, a, live your good long life, make the lives of other people who are also living better. Right. Adopt children, that's part of it too. Um, don't create more because there are so many people out there who need love. Um, and, you know, my, the, I got a lot fewer personal, almost no personal attacks from um, the Columbia Journalism Review piece because it was more analytical and because I wasn't, <laughs> I think it's because I wasn't talking about myself. But, you know, the, the one piece of feedback that peeved me, um, so we talk about this, 58.6 tons of CO2 that's not being admitted by having another child. That's in the developed world. And people seem to have issue with this number um, because it represents you know, all that child and their grandchildren's emissions and a fraction of that I've ultimately gets added back to that parent. So that very act alone does not emit 58.6. It's all the subsequent consequences and people we'll debate this until the end of time. Nevertheless, if you create another human being, like, yeah, you should somehow be responsible. Um, so, so regarding that number, I said, um, I, in my CJR piece, I really was trying to <laughs> go after everyone who's focusing on the issue of talking about flying and travel. And I'm like, that's minuscule compared to the impact that not having a child would have. And I said, if not having another child saves more than 20 times more carbon per year, why aren't journalists talking about human population in proportion to the climate impact that it can have? And uh, an environment reporter at The Atlantic, um, I don't actually know his name, I know his Twitter handle, but he was just like, he, he, he quoted that and he said, ooh, I know the answer to this one. It's because it's fundamentally wrong to compare the most emotional decision of your life to just a transaction that you make. And um, I mean, that annoyed me because the point of bringing this to light is, as Leslie Knight would say, to think before you breed. Like, <laughs> we can consider the pronatalist forces. We can consider that our parents want us to have our grandchildren. We can consider the joy that having a child could bring me. And at the same time, what a big use of resources and 
um, if we consider you know the, that child's emissions, et cetera, um, at the very end of the day, all factors considered, do you still want to do it? That's the type of thinking that I want people to do, not resort to this emotional natalist impulse right. to have a child. Roger Mark, could you speak? So we're kind of getting at, um, you know, the the resource use perhaps by a child in the developed world. Could you speak to that discrepancy and that tension in terms of, you know, thinking about reproduction in North America versus people having children in sub-Saharan Africa and India or, you know, um, not so much China now, but sort of where it matters more and how journalists should perhaps be covering those differences? You know, it's interesting. So globally, there are more than 215 million women who have an unmet need for, for, for modern contraception. So these are women who would like to have less children, but currently don't have access to modern contraceptive methods. And what we have found in, in doing this work internationally, that many of these women in developing countries um, emerging economies even would like to have less children. And I, I, I recall a woman I met in northern Ethiopia who, um, she was 39 years old, she had 11 children. Um, her name was Birhani, and I said, Birhani, you know, I'm amazed. She was a leader in her community, leading a lot of work on developing drought-resistant crops. She was doing organic farming. She was training other young women in her community. And I said, you have 11 kids? Tell me about this. And she says, well, they're not all mine. I said, really? She said, I adopted one. <laughs> so at age 39, she had given birth to at least 10 children who survived. And she said, Roger Mark, you have to understand I'm a beautiful woman. My husband cannot keep his hands off me. But, but through an agricultural extension worker who was delivering integrated training on family planning, reproductive health, and agricultural extension through the Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Public Health, I learned that I could access these resources and also learn how to be more productive in the community. And she said, that is what made the difference. I would have had more kids now. And this is what we see a lot of these women through these programs want to have less kids, but also want to be stewards of the environment. And this is, it's all about empowerment. So part of this is girls' education. We know that the return on investment on in, um, for girls' education is multifold. But we've also been seeing, and particularly with a lot of the conservation groups, um, and a lot of them are headquartered in the United States, when they go abroad and they want to do conservation work, a lot of these communities are not interested, particularly in a post-conflict area. We look at the Peten in Guatemala. Many conservation groups are going in there and saying, we want to continue to conserve these areas. And the local population said, listen, we're not interested. We, we need public health services, right? That's our number one priority. A lot of these conservation groups said, well, we don't deliver these kinds of services. So they needed to partner and gain community trust before they could get to their conservation goals. And the, the other important uh, component was sort of the economic dimension of this. Once the, the woman started increasing the household income, their husband said, wait, we want to learn more about this reproductive health stuff 
because it's bringing in more money into the family. So we were doing segregated training on reproductive health for the women and sustainable ag for the men. And the women were like, no, we want some sustainable ag training. And the men were like, can we learn about reproductive health? And the women had to decide if they would let the men into that space. So we know that ultimately the impact of having a child in a developed, more industrialized country is much larger, right? right? So the, the impact of a, a, an American child versus an Ethiopian child is 14 times more. Okay, so it's quite significant. But these women in these countries want these services. And I agree fully with you. It's about a thoughtful, informed decision to access voluntary family planning. We know about the one-child policy in China. We know about forced sterilization programs of indigenous women. We recognize the history that was not good when this movement started and so you know we have to recognize that right. but a lot of the discussion and programs have moved beyond that right. um, I'm just gonna follow up and maybe just put the microphone back in the stand because I think it's causing it to pop a little bit um, hopefully that helps but I just want to follow up in terms of the media coverage that we have seen on population um, what do you think that journalists can do better or like how can they accurately address this sensitively in terms of talking about family planning? Where, what, what should they be covering and how should they draw these comparisons in their coverage? So I, I would say, oh, that is better. I would say that there was a study that was done uh, a couple of years ago to really figure out how do we frame these issues and how does it resonate with um, the American public. And what was discovered was talking about this in terms of uh, reduction in CO2 emissions did not really resonate. Um, the framing that really resonated with an American public was looking at this in terms of a rights issue and an equity issue. That was the first framing. So putting out stories where you presented this as a question of women's empowerment and equity was the, 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 a, a really good way of framing this that made it receptive to an American public. The second, second level of framing on stories for this were around co-benefits. The fact that you're doing this and it is a, there's a reproductive health environment, there's an environment mental benefit, but there's an economic benefit. There's a benefit to children, to communities. So pulling out the core benefits in terms of equity, environment, economic, was another framing that really resonates. So it's looking at how do we talk about these human stories in a way that, that resonate with the, the, the public. And I think the equity framing and the core benefit framing is, is one that we've seen resonates with an American public. Richard, could you talk a little bit about the interplay of your work as an OBGYN and as someone who wrote this column in Durango? Was, was there controversy with that? How did that inform your practice? So I'm not totally um, inexperienced with controversy. I provided abortion services for 43 years. And um, my understanding is that some... Journalists have had death threats. Me too. Um, fortunately, we're all alive now. Not only did I provide abortion services, but also I took care of people. 
usually without regard to their ability to pay. And so even if I, um, uh, I was at the city market in Durango a couple of weeks ago and a big guy wearing a t-shirt saying pro-life came up to me and said, are you Dr. Grossman? I said, yes. Are you a Quaker? Yes. And then he started haranguing me about my religious beliefs. Um, my wife, after this, said, do you think he was packing heat? I fortunately didn't find that out. Um, I think I've gotten away from your original question, Gloria. I'm just wondering how it, what was the intersection like in, in your practice in terms of, you know, were people deterred to go to you, I guess, in town, perhaps, for OBGYN, if you're writing this Population Matters column? Mm -hmm. and, and how, what was sort of the crossover between those two roles? So the column was not that big a determinant. There were people who refused to see me, but um, that was because of the abortion issue. And the obverse is that there were many people who came to me who said, thank you. People would stop me on the street, still stop me on the street, and say, thank you for talking about human population issues. One of the comments in your story in CJR Wodan was Bill McKibben, who was saying, you know, there are many things that we can do to control climate change. Population is important, but we don't have much time. It's going to take generations for this to actually have an impact. So it actually shouldn't be the biggest focus right now. Because by the time that the benefits of having one fewer child play out, we're going to be too far past kind of the tipping point if we're not probably already. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and that conversation that you had with him and your own thoughts on that as someone who kind of writes on population? Yes. Uh, right. So my exchange with Bill McKibben was by email because he sounded like he was writing in the woods in Vermont, which sounded lovely. Um, so his argument was that we need to be focusing on more systemic change if we really want to bring our climate back from the tipping point, which is an obvious yes, we should be doing that. Um, I, the focus of what I was talking about was more about individual responsibility and their Equally important, I think, you know, on a systemic level, vote, obviously. Um, but uh, we don't know how that's going to play out at the present moment. Um, so, uh, you know, when, we, when, when environmentalists talk about envirom uh, impact, um, they use this equation called I equals PAT. Um, impact equals population times affluence or your wealth or your ability to access materials that have a high footprint um, times technology. And I, I'm still not, at this point, I'm still not entirely sure how that T figures in. But P and A are kind of, you know, not very movable. And uh, sorry, sorry, P and A are the most important things. And a lot of people say that population is the most movable factor because your wealth, and if we all had children, like our children would inherit our wealth, which means, you know, we have all this access to energy that we have here in America. That A is going to stay pretty constant. Population, if, um, as Gloria said, uh, and Alan Weissman does a really amazing job writing about this in his book called Countdown. Um, 
if everyone just sticks to having one child, which is below the replacement rate, which is two point something, um, we can bring our population down to a sustainable, yay, two billion um, within a, a two or three generations. Um, and that's to pre-industrial emissions levels, I believe, that population. And that's how researchers have come to that two billion number. Um, so yes, I, I think this issue needs to be uh, tackled on a multi-pronged approach, just like how, you know, it's great to take one fewer transatlantic flight. It's great to not have a car. All these things do add up, but um, not having a child, another child, is the greatest in terms of that quantifiable impact. And um, it's the one that's not, it's the one, people told me in my CGR piece, is the one thing that <laughs> would have the greatest impact. And it's also the one tool that we're not talking about enough. Um, just going back to Roger Mark to think about this geographically and for reporters in this room who do want to cover this issue in the future, what are some stories that are on the horizon, especially thinking about perhaps where the next population boom will hit, which is predicted to be in sub-Saharan Africa this century and how much that's going to change global population, as well as looking at places with declining population, um, you know, sort of China's got rid of one-child policy now. What are some stories that journalists who want to cover population should be thinking about right now? Thank you. I think it's, it's um, important for us to have sort of the larger context, but I would also add to Wuhan's comments that, you know, I think those of us who look at this issue don't see the population um, actions that you take as being the only solution, mm -hmm. right? So very often folks who are looking at this see this in concert with a number of other actions, right? So, but, but population and taking this action in terms of population is seen as a very important stabilization wedge, right? And that is well established. It has, has a concrete impact. So our current world population is 7.7 .7 billion. That is projected to increase um, to either of the low projection estimates at 9.4 billion or on the higher level to 10.1 billion by 2050. So on average, that represents a 28% increase in population from um, today to 2015. Globally, the global fertility rate is 2.4. So replacement level is 2.1. So this is at the level of reproduction with which we are just replacing ourselves. The three top largest countries are China, India, and the United States. It's projected if we, if we follow the projections from the United Nations, that by 2050, India will surpass China as the most populous country at 1.67 billion. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa is where we're seeing a lot of the population booms. And this is interesting. It is, is projected, and once again, these are projections, so this is not a science. Right, um, but it is projected that it's put, it's possible that Nigeria could surpass the population of the United States, and Nigeria could double its population by 2050, to, to go from 201 million to 401 million. So Nigeria represents a country of strong population growth. 
when you look at individual fertility rates and looking at um, the average number of children that a woman would have during her reproductive years, Niger um, in the Sahel has an, um, the average uh, total fertility rate for families there are seven, so seven kids per family. Niger has had the highest fertility rate for a, a long time. Um, Aging is important. Um, we see, we expect that we'll continue to have aging populations in Asia and, and Europe. And Africa has the youngest population throughout the world. So the youngest cohort that's aged uh, 15 years and, and younger. So these are some of the, the larger, you know, contexts in which these trends are, are occurring. So I, I think there are important opportunities to look at environmental change and what does it mean in terms of vulnerabilities. So we look at aging populations and susceptibility to environmental impacts and how we deal with that. What are the opportunities to learn from that? Japan is particularly concerned about this. Um, so that's, that's an important element for us to be looking at. You know, my wife is French, and I remember um, Mami, my, my um, grandmother on her side, you know, when she was sick um, with the heat waves in France, a lot of senior citizens were dying because they just were not prepared to deal with this. So there's real vulnerability there. As you look at sub-Saharan Africa and you look at populations that are um, the youngest populations, of course, there's increased vulnerability there. So there is a concept that's called the demographic dividend, um, which is when you look at sub-Saharan Africa, which has the lowest cohort of populations, 15 years and below, what is the opportunity for this population as they get into their productive and reproductive years to be moving into being competitive in the market. So policymakers in Africa are specifically looking at the demographic dividend and dovetailing that with environmental issues and trying to determine how they can implement policies and changes, particularly around the educational system, so that as young Africans, instead of graduating into unemployment, are graduating into sectors where they could leverage leverage opportunities around um, um, uh, renewable energies, for example. So this is some of the discussions that you see dovetailing with the demographic dividend and a young age cohort and what it means in terms of production um, and, and employment. So that's sort of another emerging story. Um, youth activism you know, very prevalent right now. How do we continue to mobilize? So there's a huge opportunity around this. Um, we, um, throughout this conference, have also been looking at the role of women and women leaders in the environmental sector. It's very, very important that we, we are very subtle in terms of how we talk about women's vulnerability in this space and that we're not leading to victimization of women in this context. There are a lot of women leaders, both um, internationally and domestically, that 
started being very proactive and very creative in looking at this work. So IUCN, the World Conservation uh, Union, has a, um, a whole gender and climate change division whereby they're working with governments throughout the world according to different environmental sectors and doing gender and climate plans. And that is being led by women. And that actually came out of leadership from Costa Rica along the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor. And they were leading that for IUCN and for the world. So just say, this is a fascinating story. It's about bringing in the gender dimension, women's leadership, focus on reproductive health, but breaking down different climate threats in the climate sector and moving that forward. And interestingly, the woman who was leading that work at IUCN, her name is Lorena Aguilar, she is now being called back to Costa Rica and is in the government. So is is a vice minister for international affairs within the Costa Rican government, but is a gender and conservation specialist who had been leading this work for many, many years. So just as to say that there are threats, but there are huge opportunities and huge stories to be told that I think can also come back to us here in the United States. Great. Thank you. So I have to give you all one more question before I open it up to Q&A. I'm curious as to three people working in this in this discourse in very different ways, how often do you have people confront you who say population isn't actually a problem? Um, one of the things that Wudan and I were speaking about is this idea that the early population theory was putting forward that, you know, humans, you know, overpopulation will see this issue express itself really first with humans. And we've kind of been able to push back the negative consequences for ourselves while at the same time driving the extinction of other species. And that sometimes people will be like, well, it's actually not a problem, it's not a thing because humans are still fine, we're growing, agriculture hasn't reached this, you know, end point yet, but at the same time we're losing, we're in the sixth extinction. So I'm just curious as to how often people, you know, sort of approach you with this idea that population isn't an issue and what you say to them. So, Richard, if you want to start. So that essentially is never, because people know where I, what I'm thinking. Um, but I have definitely read and heard of folks who think that the world can support infinite people. Um, I just wanted to mention that Roger Mark has come up with a lot of statistics, which are great. There's a wonderful resource, if you're not familiar with it, put up by the Population Reference Bureau called the World Population Data Sheet, and um, that's prb.org, prb.org. They renamed this year's World uh, Population Data Sheet to be something like the World Family Planning Data Sheet, but it's still got the same information, more or less. Um, I wouldn't say that people have outright told me that population is not an issue. I think mm -hmm. people try to justify that humans are really valuable and that we should have more children because they will provide us with the answers to climate change. And uh, I mean, two, two points of response to that. Number one, just as humans can be sexist, racist, we are also speciest um, <laughs> to think that we deserve more space on this planet than anything else. Second, that idea of looking to the future is 
a testament to the fact that we are so terrible at dealing with what's in front of us right now. And that is just a personal pet peeve. But um, that's what most people say. It's we should have more children. Like my children are going to be great. Right. Um, right. But and the sentiment, I think, has been repeated over the generations, too. Um, but so there is no evidence to date that having more children is going to save the planet because that hasn't happened. I do think, too, there's this framing. Again, we've kind of talked about this, but a lot of the idea of protecting the Earth for future generations as opposed to protecting it for other species. And I think there's maybe perhaps a little bit of pivoting to that. But even Greta Thunberg's thing is essentially protect, protect, protect for more children and, and the things like that. But anyway, <laughs> Roger Moore. I, I think this is a, a critical question. Thanks to the plug at PRB, I worked there for 10 years and started their pop and environment work. Um, so their, their data is very reliable. You know, this gets to the IPAT equation that we talked about and the role of technology. So there was a long-standing, very public bet between Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bond and, uh, Bomb, and Julian Simon, who was at the University of Maryland. And Simon said to Ehrlich, listen, all of your predictions on what's going to happen in the population side is not going to happen because uh, we, as a human species, will rely on creativity and technolo uh, technolo technology to find solutions mm -hmm. to these issues. So this is a very public bet in the, in the community that continues to, to today. Um, so there is a technological argument that comes in. I will say for me, as, as the father of two boys, um, a lot of this baggage is not baggage that young people have. Mm -hmm. And I will say, you know, there was a program that came out with endangered species condoms, <laughs> which I hid <laughs> yeah, which I hid in my son's chest of drawers. <laughs> so I was like, you know, before you put on these condoms, think about the species. And I was handing them out at my farmer's market and people were like, your dad is cool. He's crazy. <laughs> And, but it was to have that discussion, yeah. right? I didn't agree with the framing of these condoms. I had actually some problems with it. But, but it was an opportunity for a discussion around these issues. Yeah. And what we have, I, I think we have to look at the young, younger generation. They don't have this baggage mm -hmm. that we have. They see this um, as, as a critical issue and as a critical intervention. So I think to a certain degree, um, you know, when we're framing our stories, we always want to have, you know, who's in agreement and who's opposed and how do we balance that out. I think as journalists that this is something that we should be thinking about. I know that when we get engaged in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, we always talk about, do you really need to give that space to everyone? Right, and there needs to be an important discussion about how do we let go of some of this baggage and just move on mm -hmm. at at a certain point. Um, and I would just add just one final one final point. I've done a lot of this work in the Philippines. The Philippines is ninety five percent Roman Catholic, mm. right? The cardinal who was against all of this work in the Philippines, his real name was Sin. So Cardinal Sin opposed all of these work, all of this work in the Philippines. And what we got, what we did is what we took these priests who we considered positive deviants, mm -hmm. and these were priests 
who were inclined to having conversations and understanding around these issues. And we send them to Thailand to look at programs that were working with commercial sex workers and moving them out of that sector to begin to develop sustainable farms, organic farming, and ecotourism enterprises. And these priests came out of these conversations from getting a base of commonality. Where's our real point of interest? Community development, preserving the environment, improving human welfare. They weren't fully mm -hmm. convinced. Mm -hmm. But I have sat down with um, health professionals in the Philippines who are deeply Roman Catholic, and they say to me, Roger Mark, I know what I believe from a religious point of view, and I know what I see that's happening in terms of communities. And I have to somehow make a distinction in my mind and in my practice, because I'm a, um, a, I, I believe I have my strongly held religious beliefs, but I see the difference that this is making. And they struggle to reconcile that, but they find ways to do it. And I think we have to be respectful of these perspectives, and we have to be very thoughtful there is, you know, I have heard from colleagues who work, who are environmentalists, who have one kid and they'd like to have another. And they say, my colleagues look at me with shame. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of guilt if you're an environmentalist and you want to have more than one kid. Mm -hmm. This is, this is not fair. Yeah. You know, we need to have thoughtful decisions and discussions and framing around those set of, of issues. I think that's a really good point. And I think one of perhaps, you know, why are journalists struggling to talk about this, especially older journalists or people who have had children 30 or 40 years ago, and there is kind of that guilt and that baggage now, and they shy away from the topic because of that. And I think for people who are having children as well, there's that kind of concern, too, of my child will now reap also the impacts of climate change, not just contribute. And it's kind of this hush-hush subject. Um, so with that, I know both Wood and I are child-free, but I'm, I'm curious for people, too, perhaps in the audience who might you know have children and how they've struggled with this topic and, and covering it. Um, but I'd like to open it up to our audience. And just a reminder that uh, it's SEJ members and non-members who are working journalists first, and then everybody else. Adita, yeah. Hi. But you're not creating another child. No, but. So, oh, I'm not talking into the mic. Uh, Thank you. So I think I'm supposed to summarize your question. Um, with regards to adoption, like what happens when we take a child from a lower income, uh, less em environmentally impactful uh, place to a, a high impact place like the US? Um, I'm not qualified to really answer this question, but I think I think you know when we talk about I equals PAT, like population is still really the biggest factor. Um, I'm not. I would be curious if you have comments on how that affluence is measured and what those numbers actually look like from developing country to developed country. Thirteen times. What? Thirteen well, times. Yeah. So of course, this is a, it's a very difficult question because it's such a personal question. Um, and th there are many dimensions to it. I think first in, in terms of the framing, and I, I worked at the Sierra Club for, for a few years. 
And this was an issue that separated the club in a very public way. Because the Sierra Club, through its democratic structure, there are a series of um, anti-immigration movements who determined that the Sierra Club is the oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization with a democratic structure that they could infiltrate the Sierra Club and take over its leadership over a series of years to make anti-immigration an environmental issue. Um, and they, they did this by deploying members throughout the United States who would then run for elections in the Sierra Club board. And once the Sierra Club realized what was happening, those members were expelled, and it was taken to a very public vote for the Sierra Club and as, a, as an organization. And I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of the club. This is you know, what the knowledge is out there. The club decided that immigration, that they were not going to have a position on it, um, and that they were not going to take that beat. So you know, the first thing is you want to clarify people's motivation around this. Um, and make sure that you're getting, it's not just the anti-immigration movement that's trying to position this as an environmental issue to gain traction. So just to get that out of the way. The, the, the second question is, and there was recently an NPR story on this, is for those of us as Americans who choose not to have children but would like to be parents and choose to adopt, um, and you're able to adopt in a very ethical way and you bring in um, individuals or children from overseas who will then presumably will have higher consumption levels, um, what does that mean? Are you, in, are you defeating that purpose? The, the counter-argument to that is, um, that I have heard is, in fact, because you're so thoughtful in that decision-making, we need more Americans like you who will bring up children with an ethic of stewardship and responsible engagement. So even though, on a certain level, their consumption levels will be higher, ultimately what you will be producing is an American who will be engaged on these issues, will have an appreciation and could could make a difference. So they're, they're just two sides of the argument. You know, it's a deeply personal issue. Um, yes, you probably will be raising a child who will have um, a higher consumption level, but that individual will also have greater access to education and could be very thoughtful on these issues. And once again, that's not an action that you're taking in isolation. You're doing this along with a number of other action. So that's the debate. Yeah. I think just one real quick point, too, that is something interesting that we've seen this year in U.S. politics is the sort of adoption of overpopulation by the right wing uh, in terms of anti-immigration policies. Also, I think a few of the more recent mass shooters had a lot in their manifestos yes. about uh, migration and also yes. mass shooting as a means to control population, yes. um, which is, yeah. I'm sorry, could I add it? Yes, couple? yeah. I, I want to make sure I say this before I forget, because this is important for, for those of us who talk about these issues. So very often, the term, you know, in, in the environmental justice sessions at the SCJ, we've had a lot of discussions about what terminology is offensive mm -hmm. to indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. It's important for you as journalists to know that overpopulation is an offensive term for people of color. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a very subjective term. We miss the issue that resources are distributed inequitably and it helps promote 
uh, what we consider at times the false uh, alarms around environmental. So it, it really gets to you talking about who determines uh, which components of the population are over Populating. So yeah. just be careful. You know, typically, yeah. we talk about population stabilization. Yeah, I think that's a critical so, point. So um, population control, it's voluntary family planning. Mm-hmm. Be very, very careful. That's real old school. And that goes against the reproductive health mm-hmm. and sexuality rights movement. Mm-hmm. So you will get pushback if you're using that term. And then optimum policy size you know for us as environmentalists we very often talk about carrying capacity so just you know on what's what's the optimum population size how do you determine that that has not been determined but just to know that these are sensitive terms that that communities of color look at and react to so overpopulation population control and optimum population size just be thoughtful in your choice of words around these sensitive issues. Karen, thank you. This is a a question I actually get a lot. It's, okay, we should be talking about it, but how? Um, And I have been pointing a lot of people to Ash Sanders' essay in BuzzFeed about uh, her her birth strikers and her personal decision and journey um, into not having children. Um, I don't want to give all of it away, but she grew up Mormon. um, And over the course of her life, she became more of a critical thinker. She became an activist. Uh, She got accidentally pregnant um, and had to figure out what she wanted to do with that. But it's so nuanced. It's so complicated. And... I think it helps that it's an essay because you're di- connecting directly with the reader. Um, and I think we need more stories like that. And it puts the writer in a very vulnerable place. And I think we just have to go there. So other people, the people who are reading our articles, like actually relate to it and see them, see some component of themselves in the writer. And I will say another thing um, reporting the CJR piece, all the other journalists who I talked to who, who have written about population were women. And it's not that I didn't go looking for men. I tried, and there were very few. So, Sam, I mean, I'm not just volunteering you, but it's cool to hear, like, what you're thinking about that in adoption. Um, I really want to hear from the men, the male journalists and male voices, period, writing op-eds about, you know, how they think about it. And, you know, women have to think about reproduction. Like, babies come out of us. Um, it's not, <laughs> it's not, a, it, it, it's like if and when. Um, so the, these are things that we've just been unwillingly forced into thinking about. And I think that's why you see a lot more female voices writing about it. But I want more diversity. I mean, I am a product of the one-child policy. And my parents moved to the U.S. and had a younger brother when they were economically able. Um which that's the culture they grew up in, and that's fine. Um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from, and they raise somebody who just thinks really critically about these issues. And um, yeah, I think I think it, I I really do think um, I think earlier on somebody said, you know, we can't just uh, we just can't hammer facts over the heads of people because it doesn't get to them. And I think, you know, emotion and storytelling um, 
is a really useful tool. Somebody asked me how scalable that is, and I'm like, well, people have to be curious and read it. So I don't know about scalability, but I think in terms of getting through to a reader, <laughs> um, it is quite effective. I'd like to make a comment back to uh, Roger Mark, and I also agree that the term overpopulation is loaded emotionally. However, I believe that there are objective ways of measuring the carrying capacity of the Earth. Mm -hmm. The best one seems to be the ecological footprint. If you're not familiar with it, I commend it highly. And the word population is also not a good term, but I'm looking, have been looking for several years for a substitute. I would appreciate any ideas. Um, I came up with the title with some help actually from Phil Cafaro uh, for this session, and it includes the word population. I also wanted to give a, a um, couple of references. One is the supplier for the uh, endangered species condoms is the Center for Biological Diversity. And they are free. They're looking for distributors. They <laughs> include humor um, along with the fact of the thing that can prevent an unplanned pregnancy. And um, the Center for Biological Diversity URL is biologicaldiversity.org. And the endangered species condoms URL is endangered species condoms dot something. You know, I, I think you tell the full story, right? It's not, it's not, you know, as we have said several times during the, the, this, the, the SCJ meeting, the, it's not just one story. It's a complicated story, right? So you have to pull out the different dimensions and, and look at um, someone's lived experience and how that person makes an informed decision based on where he or, or she or however they self-identify is, right? So I, I think it's complicated, um, and you have to tell, find ways to demonstrate the complexity of that story. Um, you know, one of the things, so right now I sit at Sister Cities International where I don't immediately work on these issues, but we are a citizen diplomacy movement. There are, there's a group out of Tacoma, Washington, that's working in Limbe, Cameroon, to provide reusable sanitary nap for girls at a high school so that they can go to school. And they soon discovered, so these girls were able to reuse these napkins, wash them, and then they realized, holy shit, they don't have water. This is an environmental issue. So they started working on um, in sanitation from an environmental perspective. So they quickly saw the intersectionality of these issues. And then they were bringing that back to, to Seattle. And this was a movement that was led by women. It was interfaith, intergenerational. Um, but, but then they were having discussions about that and what that meant for them in Seattle. So it's complicated. But how do you get to these different types of, of stories and tell the full story is what I would say. Right. Great. Thank you. I'm going to wrap it up there because I have to host the awards in about a couple of minutes. Uh, but please give a round of applause for our wonderful panelists. Thank you.
and they'll probably be sticking around or at the conference the rest of the day if you have more questions, hopefully, too, for them. Thank you.